You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. First John, no surprise. We're in the book of First John still, and we are cresting into the last chapter. <coughs> we are going into chapter 5 here this morning. My name is Quentin. I'm the pastor here at Redemption Church, one of the elders here. And uh, we're just so grateful that you would join us. So grateful to have our family, our church family gathered again this week. And we're going to be looking here at 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. And the sermon is entitled Authentic Faith. We've been walking through the book of 1 John and uh, we've kind of themed this book and its application in our life as authentic, that we may know, right? That we may, we may know that we have eternal life. And that has been the resounding theme throughout this book, this book written by uh, John to this church, a church that just recently went through a, a church split, a schism, where there was some false teaching that was going on, and those false teachers have since left. And this church is really struggling, and John's writing to unite them, to unite them in their faith, to talk to them about authentic faith, and also to assure them of their authentic faith as well. Well, as we begin here this morning, let me ask you, take a little quick poll here of the congregation uh, to find out who here amongst us are those kind of people that, that have a hard time waiting for stuff. You have a hard time waiting for something that's really good to take place. That, that in your excitement for things to come, you go, you go a little stir-crazy in that anticipation. Like maybe it's as small as uh, some kind of a thing that you ordered from Amazon, some, some item that you have ordered, and, and you're excited for that thing to come to the house, and so you're, tra- you're checking your tracking numbers, you're, you're checking your mailbox, you're checking your front step, because you can't wait for that item to show up. Or maybe, uh, maybe you're planning on going on a vacation and you've been dreaming about this vacation for some time and you're all excited about it and you can barely handle the wait for that day when you, you pack the car or you board the plane and so you're counting down the days and it just seems to take forever to come. And maybe in that you're just so excited that it's distracting your thoughts and maybe you're daydreaming, spending too much time daydreaming, daydreaming about this, this future trip that you're going to have. Anybody here like that? Maybe you, maybe you have a loved one that is coming to visit you. Maybe grandma's coming to come visit, or, or the kids are coming home to visit for Christmas. Or maybe your husband or your wife has been away for a, a really long time, and, and you know that they're coming soon, but that day just feels so far off, and it feels almost like torture as you wait for them. You can barely keep your focus on the tasks of everyday life because you just can't wait for that loved one to come and return to your arms. Does anybody have a hard time in the waiting for something really good? How about when it comes to your faith? How about when it comes to the Christian life? How about when it comes to Jesus Christ? Are you so excited and ramped up and focused on his return and the glory that is to come? This, these thoughts of finally being reunited with God once again, that your patience is wearing thin and your everyday life here, uh, they start to begin, very, they feel like they are a very long days and, and the days feel harder and harder. 
And maybe as you're looking even at your own Christian life, you're looking at your spiritual progress and it seems to be slowing or maybe plateauing. And, And instead of embracing what the Lord is going to do right now, you end up focusing most of your energy on what is to come rather than what is right before you in this present reality that we live in day in and day out. And maybe you're thinking, Jesus, it's just taking too long. Jesus, I can't do this anymore. Come back soon. Now let me ask you, in the context of what we've been studying in the book of 1 John so far, does anybody here feel as though all of this authentic talk, all this authentic stuff, and even as John has been talking a lot about love and he's been, he's been talking a lot about obedience, maybe you're thinking all of these are great ideas and concepts and goals to have, but in the reality of the life that we are left to lead with our fallen natures and our fallen world all around us, it's just too hard to live these things out. It's just too far-fetched of an idea to love like God loves. It's too idealistic to trust and obey like I'm supposed to. That all of this First John stuff is really just creating unreal expectations on my life, and it's causing me to stress out and worry. And so what's the point? Right, especially when we know that Jesus is coming back, that all of this is going to be taken care of, care of so perfectly, and finally, when we get to see him face to face, right, when there's no more sin, no more sorrow, We're going to be raised imperishable. And so sometimes instead of truly engaging in the now, I'm going to focus on what is to come. I'm going to long for that. I'm going to wait for that. And I'm not going to be as concerned with what's going on right now. Does anyone here kind of feel like that sometimes in your life, in your Christian life, when we live in this world? That your faith is more concerned about the future rather than living in the present. Now, friends, I'll, I'll admit it's, it's a challenge at times to live in the already, not yet. I can also not wait, not wait for that day. I can't wait for no more temptation, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, absolutely. But if we're only concerned about the incredible gospel realities to come in the future, we're going to miss out on the incredible gospel realities that are available right now. In fact, in today's text, we're going to see three very present and achievable realities of authentic faith. So let's have a look here. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come filled by your Spirit. We come covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. And we approach you. We approach you to hear from you. And we know that you speak perfectly and sufficiently and fully 
through the very word of God. And so we're so thankful that we have your word open before us. We ask you to speak to us through it. We're so thankful that the Spirit has written this through men so that we can come to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and in doing so being saved that you've brought us to a place of repentance and faith and that you continue to grow us and sanctify us in the glory of Jesus Christ. And so we pray today that as we behold his glory, we would be further changed by him and that all of this would be given for your eternal purposes. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So three very present and achievable realities that comes with authentic faith. So friends, if you've ever been looking to buy a new car or a new truck or something similar like that, you know that most cars, in most cars you find in the window some kind of a sales tag or a sales sticker that has the breakdown of all of the features that comes with that certain vehicle. And then in that breakdown, there's often this category of standard features and optional features. There are these standard features that are are essential to the functionality of the vehicle. Just think about it, like what kind of transmission it has, what kind of an engine it has, what kind of tires are on it. And then there are those optional features that make the car more comfortable, like what kind of a seat it is, whether that's leather or cloth, or whether or not there's air conditioning, or what kind of a stereo is in there, or maybe there's a sunroof or something like that. And so when it comes down to purchasing that car, Maybe you're so fascinated with all of those promising options of the car that you forget about those essential features that are included automatically with the car. These features that are so crucial to getting you from point A to point B every day. Friends, sometimes we treat our faith that way. Sometimes we're so focused on the optional and the comfortable that we tend to lose focus on what is so essential to our faith in the here and now those things that have been so powerfully included with our faith. So friends, as John has been arguing for authentic faith throughout this book, as he just reassured the church last week about the perfecting love of God in chapter 4, now we see him dealing here in this chapter with three very present and achievable realities of authentic faith. That we don't have to wait for the end for these things. We don't have to wait for the end to engage these things, but they are ready, they are available, and dare I say they are actually achievable right now. And so the first one we see here in the text, highlighted here in verse 1, is that authentic faith reciprocates God's love. Authentic faith reciprocates God's love. As the text says in verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Now, as John isn't finished with the topic of love yet, John talks a lot about love, right? As he's not finished with the topic of love yet, what we see here today in verse 1 is how essential faith is to love how crucial and necessary faith is towards actually operating in God's love right now, right? In the already, not yet. And how the fruit of that faith shows itself in love towards others. And most importantly, what we see here today is also love for God. As John starts out by stating, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, Notice first the word believes. 
And then notice the following phrase, has been born of God. Notice that the word believes is the Greek word pisteon, which in its root is the same word for faith or trust. But more than that, notice the tense that that word is written in. And then notice the tense that the following phrase, has been born of God, is written in. We see here, it says, so everyone who believes, that's written in the present tense. And then it says, has been born of God, is in the past tense. Now, why is this important? Why am I bringing this up? Well, it's important because theology is important. As John has been talking about the reality of being born of God already in this book, what we see here is the necessity of regeneration when it comes to faith. That you have to be born again. You have to be born of God before you can actually believe that Jesus is the Christ. And you have to believe that Jesus is the Christ before you can authentically love as God loves. Notice that John didn't write this. He didn't write everyone who had believed or has believed is born again. No, he says everyone who believes present has been born of God past, right? It, this shows us that our present faith is ultimately the product of God's work in the past for us. And that if we have any hope of loving others as God loves, and if we have any hope in loving God as we ought to, it all has to begin with regeneration. It all has to begin with being born again, born of God. So you see this sequence of events. You see regeneration first. You see faith. And then you see love. Now with that, what this also highlights here for today is that this kind of love that John has been talking about must be fueled by authentic faith. That regeneration producing authentic faith. That as faith is active right now, faith actively fuels our love in the present, right? So that's not just in the future, but in the present. That we should and we can actually love others right now, and that we can actually love God right here in the here and now. And that we can also grow in both. In fact, as you look at the order of John's words here, you see that he really emphasizes a vertical action for love for God before the horizontal action of love for God's people. He says, and everyone who loves the Father, that's vertical, towards the Father, vertically, loves whoever has been born of him horizontally, which is quite different from the other places that he talks about this in this book already, right? As, as John has been arguing throughout this book many times already that authentic love for others proves our authentic love for God, what he's saying right here is that our love for God proves our love for others. And so we see that he flips it here at the end of this letter. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And so what we see here, friends, is a reciprocating kind of a love. It's a love that both comes down from God, and it's a love that returns to God. A love that goes 
out towards others, and it still returns to God. That it's all ultimately proving and authenticating a reciprocating kind of love that we get access to right now. And we get to operate in that love right now. We don't have to wait for this. We don't have to wait for a future uh, presentation of this to come. We don't have to wait for Christ to come to truly experience this reciprocating love. Friends, it's not one of those options of the Christian life. We can't take this or leave this. No, this is one of those essential and present and achievable realities we get to be a part of right now. And so if you find yourself having a hard time in the area of truly loving others, you know, especially in the church, maybe the problem that you have is that you are confining love to the horizontal. Maybe when it comes to your love, you're being selective and you're being partial because you're basing your love upon the things that are here. You're basing your love on qualities that are here and goals that are here. And you're forgetting things that are above. You're forgetting the qualities and the goal of what is above. That's that vertical emphasis of our love. And maybe the only kind of reciprocating love that you're interested in is like a boomerang kind of a love. That's a love that must be returned to you in order for you to be interested in loving somebody else. Maybe the problem is, is that you think that love has to be transactional. That as you invest it, it has to return to you. That you evaluate and you spend your love on, on like an investment. What is this going to do for me? What is this going to deliver to me in returns? Let me ask you, is that how we are to love? If, if love, if your love for somebody uh, is, is, is evaluated by an if or a but or a when, like I'll, I'll love you if or I'll love you when or I'll love you but, that's not the kind of love that we are to have horizontally for one another. As we remember that the driving force behind love right here in the text is faith, friends, faith fuels us to love not only horizontally, but vertically. It fuels us to love not just to get returns, but a love that seeks to return our love to God. That's a vertical kind of a love. That's love that goes out horizontally to others, but it goes up to God in the end. Friends, you got to think about it this way. God is not a third wheel when it comes to love. God is the hub. He is the spokes. He is the wheel. And it's only authentic when it reciprocates back to him. One commentator says it this way. He says, the gospel cannot be reduced to a kind of benign humanism with a horizontal but no vertical direction. Our love for each other is beautiful, ennobling, but tinged with sadness and ultimately tragic apart from love of God. So this means I can love that person whom I'm not normally drawn to in a horizontal sense. Because my eyes aren't solely bent on them or here, but my eyes and my heart are bent on loving God through them. 
and that I can truly love them better when I get my eyes off of myself and I get my eyes on to Christ. This means that my love can pour out even more freely because I see the greater goal behind my love that, as Romans 12 says, we are to let love be genuine. The most genuine love that could ever be is love for God that then fuels my love for others. This is that kind of a love that doesn't require transaction. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, he said this kind of love doesn't insist on its own way. This kind of love isn't wrapped up in ourselves. This kind of love doesn't love in order to be loved. No, as Jesus says in Luke 6, 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. No, friends, boomerang love is no love of God. Vertical love is God's love. You know, if you've ever seen the, gone to an air show, right, when they're flying the planes, if you've ever watched the snowbirds, they do their kind of their famous maple leaf routine, right? They come flying fast above the audience, and then they go straight up in this maple leaf kind of formation. They go straight up vertically. That's the kind of love that we are to have for one another. It doesn't stop here on the horizontal. It goes through us, authentically loving each other, but through us, up vertically to God. This is the kind of love that extends to the worst of sinners. This is the kind of love that extends to the worst of your enemies. Someone who maybe you really don't want to love because they have hurt you. But as Jesus says, we are to love our enemies. We are to do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. That yes, your reward, your reward will be great in heaven, but right now, right now, it's for the Lord. So as we think about this, who in your life right now, who in your life right now in the present, meaning today, while we're still on earth, who right now do you need to put away the pitchforks of resentment? Who do you need to, to put away that, that selfish, transactionary approach to love? Who today do you need to love so much better? Number one, is it the Lord? Do you need to love the Lord better? Do you, need, do you need to take off of him the requirements and the conditions and even maybe some resentments that you're carrying around with you against him? Do you need to stop telling God, I'll love you if you do this for me? Or I'll, I'll love you when this happens? Or I'll love you better when you provide such and such or this? could be an, an, any number of things. You know, maybe it's your basic needs. Maybe it's just the desire to have a home. Maybe it's the desire to have a spouse or children, you name it. Any conditions that we may be placing on him or blaming him for something. Maybe you think that he's taken something away from you or he's inflicted you with something. And therefore, my love for him is limited. Friends, who do we need to, or what do we need to repent of in regards to our lack of love for the one who has loved you so perfectly, even when it's hard, even when you don't understand it? Do you need to love the Lord better? Number two, do you need to love one another better? Again, casting off your old nets of love with all of its worldly clauses and conditions and self 
Who do you truly need to love better right now? Who do you need to aim your arrows of love towards? All the while knowing that your love for them are not just landing or ending with them, but your love for them, those arrows of love are landing at the feet of Jesus Christ. Who do you need to love better for God? Is it your sibling? We have kids in here this morning. Is it your sibling, your brother or your sister? For us married folk, maybe it's your spouse. I'm sure we can all say, I need to love my spouse so much better. Is it your kids? Is it your parents? Is it your friends? Is it your coworkers? Is it your church? As the text says, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And so I know that we've been hearing this over and over again in this book of 1 John, but sometimes, friends, our hearts need to hear it over and over again. Sometimes our hearts are hard and cold, and they need to be hammered on by the Spirit and His Word over and over and over again. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Now, is that it? Is that, is that where all this love stuff ends? Is that where faith finishes his work in us in the presence? Well, no, John's going to go on here. As you look at verse 2, John also says this. He says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not Burdensome. Friends, as authentic faith reciprocates God's love, authentic faith delights to obey. Authentic faith delights to obey. So friends, if you want a biblical definition of love, this is it. As John says, by this we know, in verse 2, and as he says, for this is the love of God, in verse 3. Notice how love is so intrinsically connected to obeying God's commands. It's so connected to keeping God's commands. Now let me ask you, when you think of your love for God and your love for God's children, do you instantly think about obeying God's commands? Do you instantly think about keeping his word? Or is loving God just more about what I say to him in those quiet moments. You know, God, I love you. That's good. God, I love who you are. God, I love what you've done for me. That it's something that you ponder and you pray and you think about. But maybe you don't really connect this whole obedience part to the definition of what it means to love God. There's an action part to this. The love for God is to be something more than just what we say, but it's something that we do, right? We saw that in, in, in God's definition of love, right? As we know throughout scriptures, he loves his people, but he demonstrated that love through Jesus Christ. Friends, true love for God isn't something we just profess in the whispers upon our pillow. It's not just in the words that we sing. No, love for God has action, Love for God obeys God right now. In fact, as John has already talked 
about God's commandments at length throughout this book already. We see that in chapter 2, verse 4. He says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Verse 4, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 1 John 3, And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. 1 John 3, 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And so we see how John keeps connecting God's commandments to knowing God, to praying to God, and to abiding in God. But now what we see him doing here is connecting God's commandments to loving God. That love for God isn't just about word or deed. Now this is nothing new in the scriptures. No, from the beginning, as Moses received the commandments from God way back in the Exodus, and as he even wrote about the greatest commandment in Deuteronomy 6, obedience to God has always been connected to loving God. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 2, Moses writes, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you. And then if you go down to verse 5, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Similar to what he says also in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. He says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul. And then Deuteronomy 11.1, 1, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And on and on and on it goes. In the Old Testament, loving God is obeying God. And then as we see the New Testament unfold, and as we see this new covenant of Jesus Christ, what did Jesus say about that? Well, what Jesus said in John 14, 15, he said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so, friends, again, love for God isn't something that we just, we just feel or, or we just say, but love for God is something that you do. And the same goes for when it comes to loving others. Keeping the commandments is also about loving others, as Paul says, in Romans 13, 9, he says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covenant or covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So it's not only vertically to God, it's also horizontally to one another. And so as John says here that loving others and loving God comes down to keeping and obeying the commandments. Friends, this is really good for us to hear this. It's really good for us to understand that there's more to our love than just mere words or feelings. There's more to our love for God than just that private, personal relationship with God. That our walk with the Lord isn't just vertical. It's, just, it's not just me and God, but it's also horizontal. And this is, again, going back to that reciprocating kind of a love. It's both horizontal and it's vertical. As we obey God's commandments, in fact, if you were to look back to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, 
When you look at the commandments, you see that the first four have to do with our vertical relationship to God. And then when you look at the last six, they have to do with our horizontal relationship with one another. So we see this both vertical and horizontal, which all of them ultimately end vertically in the end. So friends, obedience is a big deal to God. In fact, to God, obedience is love for God. And the beauty that we see right here in 1 John is that obedience is one of those very present, achievable realities that we can experience right now. We can experience obedience because of authentic faith. Now, you might be saying, hold on, Pastor. I thought you said that we couldn't obey God. I thought you said that we couldn't obey God's commandments. But now you're saying that we can? Well, what I have to say to that and what I teach and what the Bible teaches is that you can obey God. You can keep his commandments, not perfectly. No, only Jesus did that. But we have to remember that we can obey God. That's why right here, even in the New Covenant, John is talking about keeping and obeying God's commandments. We have to know this. He's not talking about perfection, but direction. No, friends, the Bible is clear that it's only Christ who was the perfect, sinless man. But as we are united to him by faith, and as we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and as we have this clear guidance from God throughout the Scriptures, we have to remember that when it comes down to obeying God or disobeying God, it's always a choice. Right? We're not spiritual robots who just obey perfectly, nor are we demons who couldn't obey God if we tried. No, friends, in our spiritual resurrection, in our being born again by the Spirit, as I, I talked about last week in, in Ezekiel 36, the promise that God gave to his people is that he's going to come and take out our hearts of stone, and he's going to give us a heart of flesh, and he's going to put his spirit within us to do what? Ezekiel 36, 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So friends, as we have the Holy Spirit in us, by faith, we can walk in God's statutes. And we can be careful to obey his rules. That doesn't sound like perfection to me, but it does reflect what the Holy Spirit does, that he is our helper. And so, friends, as, as John MacArthur says, it's not about perfection, but about direction. It isn't about perfection. But it also means that we can actually follow God. We can obey and it is a progressing direction in our obedience towards God. And as we're walking in this faith, and as we're walking in this love, we can actually hope that we can actually begin to walk more and more like Jesus Christ. We can start looking more and more like Jesus Christ. We can begin to obey more. I mean, I mean just, just think about that sin that you've been battling over the last couple years, or maybe the last three months in your life. 
Think about how you're actually growing in that. Not perfection, but direction. And then the beauty of that is that in keeping his commandments and walking in his ways, the goal is that it would not be burdensome. Right? Verse 13 talks about that. And his commandments are not burdensome. What a goal that is. What a goal that is for us, that his commandments, his ways, his will are not burdensome to us. Let me ask you all here this morning, and let's be really honest. How many of us here feel that God's commandments or God's will upon our life can be burdensome? That doing the right thing and that doing the hard thing, that responding in obedience to what God has clearly revealed in his commandments are at sometimes a burden. In the sense that this word is being used in the Greek is in the sense of a great weight, that it's, it's heavy. How many feel that God's commands upon you are too heavy? And friends, I get that. I do. I get that it can feel heavy at times, but what John is saying here is that even though it can be heavy, and even though it's often the harder choice, that as we operate in genuine faith, in genuine love for God, obedience to God can be transformed from being a burden to becoming a delight. That we can actually delight to obey God. Friends, the fact that we have a new heart and we have God's spirit and we have authentic faith, which fuels authentic love, can lead us to a place of truly delighting to obey in God. One of the most beautiful realities that you can experience right now is that obedience can become a delight. Obedience to our loving God becomes a joy. I mean, that's what God wants for us. He doesn't want for us to just coldly obey him. He doesn't want us to obey him begrudgingly. No, God is always after our hearts. He's after our desires. He's after our affections. He wants us to obey, not just out of fear, but out of love for him. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 119, in fact, This week, go home and read all of Psalm 119. What the psalmist says in Psalm 119.16, he says, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Or as he also says in verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Friends, as God doesn't accept empty sacrifice, He wants us to see that all of his ways are good and that these commandments that he places upon our life are good. That any commandment that God gives is not a bad thing for me, but it's a good thing for me. I mean, just think through those 10 commandments. Right? Think about do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Friends, to not do these things is nothing but good for us. And it's nothing but good for our society. Even in some of the New Testament commands that talk to us about not giving in to immorality, not giving in to lust, not getting drunk with wine, not fornicating, not being greedy for gain, and all the more. 
We have to remember that whatever the Lord commands is good. And if we have a problem with it, we have a problem with what's right and what's good and what's best. And in turn, if we have a problem with that, we have a problem with God. And so friends, I'd say, especially young people, because I remember being where you're at. I remember being a young guy and, and thinking that to be a Christian meant that you had to miss out on all the fun. That to be a Christian meant that you were to lead a boring life. And so instead of delighting to obey God, I delighted in my sin and I was playing hard and fast and loose with my eternity. Friends, what I didn't realize in my young years and to my complete ignorance and shame is that all the ways of God is good. That God's way is always best. What he says and what he commands is best. That in his commands, he's not keeping me from good things, but he's keeping me from sin. That he's keeping you from destructive things. Friends, God is good. His ways are always good. His ways are always right. His ways are always healthy. And I'll tell you this, his ways are where the real fun and joy is. And then friends, beyond all of that, the driving force behind all of this is that even though we fail to obey, even though we will fail to obey, friends, we're gonna fail to keep all of God's commandments all the time. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that causes this burden to lift. The commandments are to be a delight to pursue, just as, just as Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, where he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, if you're striving in the flesh alone, if you're trying to just do enough good things in your own strength, if you're trying to obey God apart from Christ's work and his spirit's work, you are going to be heavy laden. You are going to have the heaviest yoke that you'll never be able to bear. No, the whole gospel is about Jesus coming to take our yoke, to take our burden. And so the call is, is to come to Jesus. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Take his yoke upon you. Take his rest for your weary soul. For his yoke the gospel removes your old burden of sin. His yoke is easy. His yoke is light. And his yoke is a delight. Friends, that's what it means for God's command to not be a burden. He took the burden away. And the more that we walk in his way, the more that we delight to obey. If anybody knows the story of Pilgrim's Progress, you'd remember that the main character, Christian, was on a journey to the celestial city. 
and he was packing a great backpack of burden on his back. It, re it resembled his life load of sin and debt that he owed God. And it wasn't until Christian was confronted by the cross of Jesus Christ that his burden fell off of his back. And then you hear no more of it in the story. The burden is gone. Just like we sing in the old hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. The chorus goes, At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. And now I am happy all the day. That's delighting in God. Delighting to follow him. Friends, that's the most happiest place to be, is to walk in the freedom of the gospel that now because of Christ, I can obey. I was a slave to my sin. I was in the domain of darkness. But God came and he saved me so that I could be free to worship him, free to love him, free to obey him. All because Jesus removed our burden and that his ways are not burdensome but a delight. So friends, authentic faith delights to obey. Now thirdly, and lastly, as we move to verse 4 and 5, we see that we see a third very present and achievable reality of authentic faith, authentic faith and it is that authentic faith overcomes the world. Authentic faith overcomes the world. Verse 4 for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Again, as John refers to everyone who has been born of God, he's talking about Christians. He's talking about those who have been made new, born again, born of the Spirit of God. And he's talking about a very present and achievable reality that born, only born-again Christians can experience right now. And that is the reality of victory over sin and overcoming the world. Friends, it's by faith, as John says. Our faith, it says in verse 4. Our faith, what does that mean? Well, it means what verse 1 and verse 5 have been saying all along. You look at, look at verse 1 and verse 5. That's the sandwich of this whole section. It all comes down to believing that Jesus is the Christ and Jesus is the Son of God. So Jesus is the long-promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, and he is the Son of God. He is God. And God sent him so that we can have victory over sin. We can have victory over death. We can have victory over Satan and all evil. And friends, it all comes down, as it says here, to truly believing in the good news of Jesus Christ. And that means believing it with your whole life and your whole eternity in Christ Jesus alone. That you can, in fact, join Christ in his victory, in his overcoming of the world. Friends, as Jesus was sent to live and to die, it was his living for righteousness that gives us his righteousness. And it's his dying for our unrighteousness that he removes our unrighteousness from us. Right? That's that whole great exchange of the gospel. Flesh for flesh. Blood for blood. Life for death. His righteousness for our sin. 
that Christ Jesus won the battle. That as he died and as he suffered God's wrath for our sin, yet he was raised on the third day, conquering sin and death and Satan forevermore. It's in that reality that he raises us up from our spiritual grave. As we repent and we believe in the good news, he raises us up as victors with him, as those who are overcoming the world with him. Friends, it's because of Jesus that you might have victory right now. And it's because of Jesus that you can have victory right now. Again, look at the tense of these words. As it says that as faith has overcome the world, we overcome the world. It's the perfect past action that has real and present gospel realities in the present right now. Victory. Now I know that it's hard sometimes to feel victorious, isn't it? It's challenging at times to feel like you are overcoming the world, especially as temptation and sin still remain, especially as you still fail to obey. Right? I know that the world's attraction and the pull of the world is hard to resist at times. And that as you fail in that and you, you give yourself over to sin, you may not feel so victorious. You may not feel like you're an overcomer of the world. But again, that's precisely when we need to stop and we need to look upon the cross. We need to look upon the battlefield that was on that cross. And now how that cross is empty and the tomb is empty. Jesus rose from the grave, conquering sin and death. Jesus is the infinite warrior, the eternal king. He is our victor who walked out of that grave. And he gave us the victory forever and ever. And that it's because he did that, for those who don't deserve that, that we can look and we can remember and we can operate in gratitude and joy and honor and worship that we can get back up when we fall down. We can suit back up with that armor of God. We can continue to battle our temptations and sin. We can continue to turn from our sin. And we can continue to overcome the darkness of this world. And friends, as the world is only becoming darker and darker before the end, and as temptations and trials and suffering are only going to increase before Christ returns, the closer he gets and the more that we await his return, the more we need to be winning the battle of sin. The more that we need to become overcoming the world as it presses in, all in the strength that Christ provides. He said in John's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 33, he said, I have said these things 